Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish Commentary. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkin, our Father, our King, uh, here we are once again, Lord, ready to uh, learn what you have to teach us. Holy Spirit, we are here, ready to, to uh, listen to your voice and to, uh, to obey uh, the things that you are uh, teaching us and giving us. Uh, we know that you have been poured out without measure because of the promises that Yeshua gave to us. We know that also one of your primary jobs, Holy Spirit, is to uh, teach us, remind us about the words of the Master. And so we know that as we study uh, what he has given to us, what he has left for us, uh, his teachings, uh, we know that you will come alongside that and will um, remind us of that and, and explain it to us and empower us to walk it out, to be obedient to that which the Master left us. So thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to sit and, and study with uh, fellow believers, with other like-minded um, students of the Word, those who are uh, passionate about the Bible, those who are uh, diligent to study, uh, and for those who um, can't describe themselves with those adjectives, Lord, convict us. Help us to have a hunger and thirst for your word. Help us to, to realize that uh, we have got to avail ourselves of the Holy Spirit, of the Ruach Kodesh, in order to live lives that are pleasing to you. We've got to turn away from the flesh. We've got to say no to the old nature. We've got to allow the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin and to help us to seek uh, forgiveness uh, when we do sin, to confess our sins, knowing that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness we read in the Apostolic Scriptures. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity uh, to uh, talk with the students, to um, discuss the, the Galatians material. And Lord, I personally thank you for the opportunity to, be, to share these podcasts uh, with those around the world um, on a weekly basis, on a daily basis, uh, even for those who aren't able to make the live Skype sessions. Lord, I know that there are um, several that are tuning in to the podcast after the fact, and I'm so thankful that I am able to play a part in their spiritual growth. Uh, continue to give me wisdom and insight and forgive me where I fall short. And I'll, I'll uh, be sure to uh, give you the praise and the glory of Bashim Yeshua. Thank you, everyone, for joining me once again for another week on our Galatians study. Uh, my name is Ariel, and uh, my um, official 
title, I guess you want to call it. It's Torah teacher at my congregation, Kehilatunava. It's kind of like a Bible teacher or um, something to that effect. And uh, I'm proud to call this congregation my home. Thornton, Colorado, Kehilatunava translates as the harvest congregation in Colorado. That's where I have membership, have been there since so. Oh, 2000. And um, I say that not to brag or boast or anything like that. Really, I mention that each week because I want you to know that I'm not just some Lone Ranger Bible teacher sitting in my basement downloading uh, the Spirit of God into my skull and then spitting it out into the internet. In other words, it's not just my own opinion. I'm accountable is the point I'm trying to make. And I think it's so important in this day and age of, um, of Bible teachers that you can find on the internet you know you can google any bible verse and find uh you know a plethora of of opinions and in, interpretations on that bible verse you know you can find a, a the the youtube videos that are available for for commentaries or legion and things like that and so it's it, basically the internet can be an extremely helpful uh, resource when it comes to uh studying the bible or it can be a dangerous place and the 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 truth of the matter is is that for as for as much truth is out there there's as much error in bad theology and bad teaching so uh it's 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 helpful that you screen and that you that you um uh what's the challenge i'm just trying to give to you just don't believe everything you hear on on the internet um you know uh if you find some guy teaching a, an interpretation of a passage or something like that, go back and do a little bit of research. Who is he? Is he is he plugged in somewhere? Is he accountable to a, a larger group? Is he is he um, availing himself of a larger community that where which he can get kind of a a, um, a balanced view of a Torah, a healthy view of of the Bible, and as from seen from a community perspective. After all, the Torah was not given to to individuals alone. Uh, the Torah was given to a community of individuals, and there's there's safety in the community. And I realize that there are people out there who listen to my voice that are that feel like you're alone. You you don't have a congregation that you can meet with. Um, you feel like, hey, there's no other messianics around me. I'm I. What do I do? What do I do? Well, you can make internet communities. Uh, you know, right? You can find them. You know, uh, groups, uh, internet groups, things like that. You can you can find those. But the point I'm trying to emphasize is that uh, there are some Bible te- teachers out there who seem to just position themselves as the know-all, be-all, uh, speak-all, say-all, you know, all-wise, all-knowing, uh, you know, the final answer type individuals, and they don't seem to um, answer to anyone at all. And and those are the ones you probably want to steer clear of. So. Don't know why I went off on that uh, tangent. Uh, before I got started with the study, perhaps someone out there needs to hear that. And uh, that was just kind of in my spirit. All right, well, let's date stamp our recording tonight. Uh, today is January the 20, 20th, for most of you, 2018. And this is week number 88 in our Galatian study. Uh, recall that we meet for 10 weeks and then we take a break for two weeks. So we're getting close to our um, two-week break here within the next two um, shows. Um, we're working our way through the book of Galatians. We've been meeting for a little over two years, and we're almost done with the book. We're starting in Galatians chapter 6 tonight, and um, those of you who've read the book of Galatians know that it's a short book, and that if you're following along with my commentary, you know that I don't even hit every single verse 
in the commentary. In fact, we're working our way from a uh, commentary that I wrote to the book of Galatians called Exegeting Galatians. It's available on my website at www.tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com, TateSayTorah.com. And uh, right on the top of the homepage, there's a link for the Galatians commentary. Click on that and you'll get all the relevant information to follow along with the written notes, the audio podcast that I record, and any other relevant information such as joining the newsletter, the Galatians newsletter, so that you can receive the um, the weekly teaching notes and uh Keep informed of the uh, uh, the audio podcast as I make them available and things like that. So, all of that is free, and I invite you, everyone, to um, to join us. You can uh, you can join us live each week, Saturday evenings from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time via Skype. You just need some kind of electronic device that can uh, connect to Skype, so smartphone or tablet, you know, iPad. Laptop, desktop, iMac, whatever you want, um, PC, just anything that'll con- that has internet connection will connect to Skype, and then you can join us for the live classes. And then one last thing, real quick, uh, for logistics, and then I'll jump into the into the liturgy. Um, after each live session, which goes for about an hour, give or take, then there is a uh, an after chat session where I stop recording uh, the, the 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 audio and we just chat. You know, me and the other fellow students that are in the in the chat room, and uh, we go back and forth with questions and comments. And so, if if you're uh, if you're interested in um, hearing further dialogue, you know, you want to pick the brain of the of the teacher, or you want to dialogue with some of the other students and uh, just go back and forth with whatever topic, then uh, that's the time to engage in that. And that is only available exclusively for those who attend the live Skype class. I do not record and upload that to iTunes, so you're not going to catch that anywhere. Um, that's just a treat for those who are in the live class, okay? And we we, we engage in that for about 15-20 minutes or whatever uh, whatever we feel. Alright, without further ado, let's look at some liturgy tonight. Uh, as we're fond of doing, we always pull a scripture selection out of the Tanakh, that is to say what people call the Old Testament, and then we pull a corresponding selection out of the Apostolic Scriptures, Brit Chadashah, or what people call the New Testament. For the selection out of the Tanakh, we'll use the traditional Shema again tonight. There's no heavy theological connection to the Galatians passage like I have in the past, where I keep reading the um, passage out of the book of Ezekiel. Tonight, we're going to skip Ezekiel and go back to the Shema. We've read this one before, too. And the only thing I want to highlight with you for you tonight is um, something I, I've spoken about in sermons uh, where I've spoken at churches where, I'm visit, where I visit. Sometimes I'll bring this out as a, as, a, as a guest speaker, and I'll bring that out to you tonight in our liturgy real quick. But first, what I want to do is just read the, the selection. It'll be short and to the point. It's Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9, and it is the traditional uh, first part of three parts of the Shema that uh, traditional Judaism recognizes. Um, if you're ever uh, able to sit with traditional Jews and pray the set time prayers, morning prayers or afternoon prayers, uh, or Sabbath prayers or something like that, or if you own a Jewish uh, prayer book, a Siddur, then you're going to find this section uh, highlighted as one of three passages that are uh, designated the Shema. All right, 
this first section is simply these first five verses, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I guess those are six verses there. Deuteronomy chapter six. We're gonna we're gonna read the English portion out of the uh, one that I'm uh, traditionally used, the um, Jewish Publication Society's 1917 English version, which for the most part is almost identical. Uh, because of its old English, almost identical to basically a, a King James version. Uh, so if you've got a KJV, this is going to sound very similar to one of those. Uh, verse 4 of Deuteronomy chapter 6 reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Verse 5 says, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Verse 6 says, And these words which I command thee this day shall be upon thy heart. Verse 7, And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in the house, in thy house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And verse 8, And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thy hand, and they shall be for frontlets between thine eyes. And verse 9, And thou shalt write them upon the doorposts of thy house, and upon thy gates. And of course, the Old English has the thy, and thee, and thou, and, and things like the. So that's uh, what uh, kind of distinguishes it from moder- other modern versions. You know, we, we don't speak in thou, and thee, and thy anymore in English. We say you and your and, and things like that. All right, let's look at the, the Hebrew of uh, this same passage, starting in verse 4. Uh, reads, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Verse 5 says, Va'ahavta et Adonai Elohecha b'chol levavcha u'v'chol nafshecha u'v'chol me'odecha. Verse 6, V'hayu hadvarim ha'ele asher anochi mitzavcha hayom al levavecha. Verse 7, V'shinantam levanecha V'dibarta bam b'shivdecha b'vetaka u'vlechtaka v'derech u'vshachbacha u'vkumecha. Verse 8. U'k'sharatam le'ot al yadecha v'hayu l'totafot b'in e'necha. And verse 9. U'k'tavtam al mezuzot betaka u'vish'arecha. And that'll be the um, basically the, the selection. There's some, the thing I wanted to highlight just real quick in the liturgy, something you might not have noticed when you're reading through this, and you might not pick this up because you're reading it in English, but it jumps out to me because I'm, I'm able to read the Hebrew, is that um, in Hebrew, when we're talking about um, pronouns, um, in Hebrew, uh, Hebrew is a language that um, is able to capture masculine and feminine when it comes to uh, nouns and pronouns. Uh, and the verbs that are, when we, when we read a, a phrase where there's a verb and a noun and a verb and a pronoun or something like that, then the, 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 um, the, the, um, uh, the, um, the, the masculine, uh, feminine, uh, uh, the gender, that's the word I was looking for, the gender of the verb has to agree with the gender of the noun or the pronoun that's in that particular phrase. And also, when it comes to uh, personal pronouns, such as you, your, I, we, he, them, they, the pronouns in Hebrew are also designated by masculine or feminine, and as well as by num- number. So if I have like first person, second person, third person, you know, I, me, he, she, it, we, uh, them, they, those, you, you all, those types of things, when we start changing the number of people, that we're talking about in Hebrew, well, then this gets captured in the original Hebrew so that we can see. Uh, sometimes this gets washed out in the English, like if I say you, Y-O-U. In English, that could be a singular you or a collective you. 
Um, but in Hebrew, we can see this. And so what's interesting is that when we're reading through passages like the one we just looked at tonight, for instance, I'll just highlight this in verses 1 and 2 of this same passage. What's interesting is that in the Hebrew, when Moshe is addressing Israel, uh, it's more natural and it's most applicable that he's addressing all of Israel, collective Israel. So thus, if we were to say single out the word you or the word your, Y-O-U-R, um, in in uh, English, we could have two possibilities. We could have a singular you, your, and we could have a collective you, your. Um, but in Hebrew, we're able to see which one he's designating. And so it's quite natural to understand that Moshe is addressing a group of people. The words uh, as a document were written to be received by a community. So thus, we would naturally think that it's the collective you or your that's always being used in the text. But that's not actually the case. There are some times when Moshe drops down into, for whatever reason, we if we assume that and believe by faith that, that Moshe was writing exactly what God told him to write, and that stylistically when Moshe switched from uh, singular you, your, to plural you, your, that he was doing so under the direction of the Holy Spirit, if that's the case, then one has to wonder out loud sometimes why we have the 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 the, the um the interchange between the the singular you your and the collective you your. And so I want to show this to you. And what's it's very easy to see this in an English translation that uses surprise surprise Old English. Why is that so? Because in this version of Old English, for instance, in this 1917 JPS version. In the Old English, when we want to say collective your, as in a group of people, for instance, I'll pick on this phrase, Lord your God, in verse 1. Um, if you're looking at my screen, you can see I highlighted there in blue. In Old English, we actually used the collective your. But in Old English, when we want to highlight that this is a singular you or your, then the Old English used thy. So instead, we have this contrast between Lord your God and Lord thy God. And you'll see this in the KJV. You'll see this in the uh, 1917 JPS version. You'll see it also in a version like, I think it's uh, Young's Literal Translation, the YLT. But what you won't see this is in most modern translations, like the ESV, the NASB, the NIV, the new, the NKJV, your, your Net Bible, uh, all these other modern versions you know, that are less than, say, 50 years old. Those modern versions kind of wash all that out because in, in modern English, we don't say thy anymore. We just say you or your. And it's a, a singular your to indicate thy. And it's a collective your to indicate the, the, the you know you all, as we say in the South. But um, I think it's interesting that the Old English gives us a chance to retain that designation as we see it in the Greek. I'm sorry, as we see it in the Hebrew. And so again, if you look at, for instance, if I just highlight the first verse of Deuteronomy 6, verse 1, uh, Moshe says, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the ordinances which the Lord your God commanded you, commanded to teach you. And you might be wondering, well, is your singular or is it plural? Well, if we look at, if you know anything about Hebrew pronouns and the, the way that Hebrew pronouns are designated uh, in the script, well, then we can highlight um, here we have Adonai, the tetragrammaton, that's the Lord right there. And then this part, uh, Elohechem. The first five letters, Elohe, is God part. And then the last two letters, the suffix that gets added, these last two letters here, are the part that indicates the pronoun, whether it's singular or plural. In this case, Chem, 
which is these last two letters, it gets added to Elohe, and we end up with Elohechem. And so thus, this indicates a plural pronoun, Elohechem. So this part here, Adonai Elohechem, is the Lord your God, and the your is collective. It's plural. But when we look at verse 2, Moshe suddenly introduces that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God. And in the English of this version that I'm reading, it says thy God instead of your God. Well, why did Moshe, why did the translators seemingly arbitrarily switch from your God to thy God? Well, it's because in the Hebrew, we have the same word for Lord, which is Yah, you know, yod vav the Tetragrammaton. It's the same as both, both, both verses 1 and 2. But the second word, sorry, the second word, Elohe, the first five letters are the same. Elohe, just like the first one, Elohe. But the last two letters for the plural of Chem, meaning your, now instead say Ha, which is a singular pronoun. So instead of saying Adonai Elohechem, the Lord your, plural God, Moshe now says Adonai Elohecha, which is the Lord thy God, singular pronoun. And um, again, you're probably thinking, well, Ariel, what's the big deal? Who cares if it's in the singular or the plural? Who cares if Moshe is addressing the group or if he's collect addressing uh, a singular person. Here's the way I interact with the, uh, what I'm looking at in the in the, um, in the raw data, in the pashat, in the literal. I think that what God is trying to convey through Moshe by by having these what might seem like um, small differences, but in actuality, I think they're actually significant uh, uh, details. I think what God is trying to convey to uh, collective Israel is that. Um, there is a time when you should think of yourself as a group, and there are some advantages to thinking of yourself as a group collectively. But there are also times when it comes to, for instance, personal salvation, that you should think of yourself as an individual. Your relationship to me, I'm speaking as if I'm God, your relationship to me is in fact as a group. But when it comes to salvation, the the, the part that's that you really need to focus on is your own personal salvation, your own personal relationship with me, your own individual relationship with me. You shouldn't just think that because you're a part of a group that you are automatically saved as a group. There's an aspect aspect of salvation that must be um, interpreted and uh, experienced on an individual level. Right, uh, I am your God as a group. I am your God as a people. God would say to the people of Israel, but there comes a time when you, you as an individual, need to realize that I must be your personal God individually, and on a salvific level, that's where salvation kind of meets us at the heart. It God is my God. He is the God of my people, yes, but He is my God. He is my personal God, and unless He is my personal God, I can't really. Um, I can't really interact with him even on a collective level. I can't really know him personally. I can't even know him corporately unless I know him personally is the point I'm trying to say. And so uh, I think that we can see this. We can make a case for it in the Hebrew, how that when you know God is enjo- uh, Moshe is enjoining Israel as a collective people group to follow after God and to love God. Yes, this is true. As a people of Israel, we should love God as a people group. But... Moshe is also challenging them, meaning on a personal level. You, you individual Israelite, Moshe pointing his pointy finger at each individual person who's listening to him uh, give this uh, uh, sermon that day. You, you, O man, O Israelite, not 
the group you, you individual. Moshe like takes his eyes and focuses on some person. He points his finger at one person, not just the, the group of them, but one person, you. And so it's with this concept of you, O single Israelite, that we pick up the words in verse uh, 4 and 5 and 6 and 7, the words with the verse that we just read tonight. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. Our, of course, is collective. We can see this in the in the uh, uh, suffix here, Eloheinu, the last two letters. Right? Remember the first five letters, Lord, uh, God, Elohe, from the word Elohim. Uh, Elohe, God, but these last two letters, N-U, the new part, Elohe, new, the new is our. So it's a collective, right? The Lord, our God, personal, first person, the Lord, our God, first person, plural. Elohe, new, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. But then look at verse 5. Moshe says, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God. There it is right there, jumping out in black and white, the Lord thy God. And what is it? Adonai Elohecha. It's the Lord thy personal God. Singular, right? The Lord your, as an individual, personal God. And it's with that that Moshe enjoins verses 5 through 9 with the with the same, uh, the Lord your God, your Lord, your God, your God, your personal God. You, the Lord must be your personal God. Don't just find yourself uh, a... a, a join to a group and say, well, since God is the God of us as a group, I guess he must be my God too. Don't make that guess. Don't assume that just because you belong to a group that you also have this personal relationship with God. It doesn't work that way. God uh, commands a personal relationship with us. So yes, uh, the words were given to a collective group. Don't get me wrong. But there are times when the, the dynamic of the Torah works best as as seen through the li- eyes of an individual and sometimes through the eyes of a collective group. So that's kind of a little bit of the extended liturgy that I wanted to uh, uh, kind of share with you tonight. Um, Consider that uh, next time you read through the Shema, and then maybe next week when we uh, we're going to use the Shema again, I'll, I'll use the middle passage of the Shema, the Deuteronomy 11 passage that starts in verse 13, and we're going to notice that some of these same words, where Moshe says, "Love the Lord God with all your heart, with soul, and all your might," he repeats them in Deuteronomy chapter 11, and there he uses the plural pronouns, "the Lord your God." Lord, in fact, the English is going to say, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart," instead of "thy." with all your soul instead of thy, and with all your might instead of thy. And we'll see that these work together. Again, it is a group effort, but, but, and this is very important as we see this through the lens of having a personal relationship with God via Yeshua, um, that, that God is interested in the personal relationship as well. All right, with that, this is what's going to connect the Tanakh liturgy to the Apostolic Scriptures. Tonight, we're going to turn to Galatians chapter 6, and we're going to read verses 1 through 10 for our Greek liturgy. And the thing that's important for this liturgy as we listen to it is you're going to see that Paul has his admonition, right, this... this um, these words of, of instruction and encouragement to the Galatians as he's closing down his letter, and he's speaking to them as a group, as a group. But there's this dynamic of the community that is strengthened by the fact that individuals are connected to a group, and at the same time, the group is connected to individuals. The group is comprised of individuals, so that the the safety of a group is the is built up by the strength of individuals within the group at the same time, so that you need both. 
So there's you could think of it like two ditches. If you think of a road with a ditch on either side of the road, and as you're kind of pulling your wagon down this road that I'm describing my little um, example, you want to avoid the ditch on either side of you because if your wagon gets stuck in the, the rut, kind of like bowling alley where you have a, a gutter on either side, if you're, if you're wagon gets caught in a rut on one side or the other, then sometimes it's very hard to pull that wagon out, depending on how deep that ditch or rut is. And so it's kind of the same concept theologically. Um, when you're talking about a, a, a community, like a, a, you know, like a, a church group or a, a Bible study group or a, a, a congregational group or a synagogue or something like that, you're going to have people who, who find it hard to plug into a group because they have this kind of rugged individualism mentality they're kind of like they always think of 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 themselves alone they're they always think that they're by themselves and they kind of have this mindset of no one cares for me so i won't care for anyone else mentality which is wrong that's a a rut that we want to avoid right that's a ditch on one side of the road that we want to steer clear of it's an unhealthy view of a of a church group or a or a, a bible study group or a community Right, that's an unhealthy view where you're thinking I'm alone and no one cares for me, no one ca- looks out for me. Therefore, I'm not going to look out for anyone else. I'm just going to uh, uh, focus on myself. You know, me, myself, and I. That type of mentality. All right, that's wrong. And then the other side of that extreme, right? These two ditches represent extremes. The other side of the extreme is just thinking, well, you know, I'm part of a group and I'm safe. You know, as long as the group is doing the right thing, I'm I'm fine too. Um, that that's an extreme where you're just thinking, you know, as long as the group is safe, then I'm safe too. No, that doesn't work either, because the group can go off into error, and if and you can get uh, you can go off into error along with the group if you're not careful to sometimes um, um, uh, study things for yourself. If you just kind of assume that the group is right, you know, whatever the pastor's saying is right, the elders are saying is right. You just assume that since everyone else in the church agrees with it, that it must be right. That's an extreme we want to avoid as well. So there's two extremes we want to avoid. One will ride our cart right down the comfortable middle road, and that's the the road of safety. And that's where the the Tanakh uh, liturgy is going to plug into the liturgy from tonight's reading out of the book of Galatians. Notice how Paul ad- admonishes both the group as a collective, but then he singles out a few individuals here and there, and 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 highlights their roles as 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 strengthening the group as a whole. So, let's look at this. Galatians chapter six, verses one through ten, out of the ESV reads. Verse 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Notice the dynamic, the interplay between the group and the individual. Let's keep going. Verse 2, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Verse 3, For if anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Verse 4, but let each one test his own work, and then let his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. And then verse 5, for each one will have to bear his own load or his own responsibility. So notice the interplay that Paul is working with between a a group as a whole, but then individuals uh, having to work out their own responsibilities and yet still be plugged into the group as a whole. Right. let's keep going. Verse 6, let the one who has taught the word share all good good things with the one who teaches. Verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatsoever one sows, that will he also reap. Verse 8, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Verse 9, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season 
we will reap if we do not give up. Verse 10, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, notice the group mentality again, the group collective, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. All right, and that's where we'll end with the <clears throat> with the English part. Let's go back and look at the uh, Greek of this. We'll just use the um, the uh, interlinear that uh, uh, the um, BibleHub.com is supplying for us, and I'll just read the, the black part right here for those of you who are in, with me in the live class. All right, uh, the Greek, starting in verse 1, Adelphoi, which is brothers, right? Adelphoi, en kai prolenthe anthropos en tini proptomati, hemes hoi pneumatikoi katartizete kan toyuton en pneumati prautetas, skapon sautan me kai su perastes. Verse 2, alelon ta bare. Bastazete, kai hutos anapleirosete, tan naman tu Christu. And we're going to look at this phrase, fulfill the law of Christ, tan naman tu Christu. We're going to look at that more carefully tonight. Verse 3, e gara dake tis enaiti maiden un, franapata hautan. Verse 4, ta de ergan hautu, dakimatzeto. Hekastas kai tate eis hautan manon to kaukema. Hexe kai uk eis tan heteron. Verse 5. Hekastas gartan idion fortian bastase. Verse 6. Koino de to katakumenos tan logan to katakunti in pasen agathois. Verse 7, me planaste theos u muk teridzetai, ho gar in spere anthropos tuta kai therese. Verse 8, hati ho speron eis ten saraka hiautu, ek te sarakas therese thoron, ho de speron eis top numa ek tu penumatas therese zoen. I onion. Verse 9. Ta de kalan poiuntes me enkakomen kairo gar idio. Therosomen me ekluamenoi. And the final verse, verse 10. Araun hos kairon echamen ergat somitha to agathan pros pantas malista de pros tus Oikius tes pistios. All right, and we'll stop right there with the Greek rendering. That was the um, SBLGNT version of the Greek, in case you're wondering which Greek version I read from. And uh, in our commentary, we're going to look at this verse 3. If indeed thinks himself anyone to be something, nothing being he... I'm sorry, not verse 3, verse uh, 2. Sorry about that. Uh, One another's burdens bear you, and thus you shall fulfill the law of Christ. We're going to look at that Greek tonight. All right, let's turn to my uh, commentary. Um, we're on the top of page 174. If you have 
got the written notes in front of you there. If you're interested in printing them out, they're just a little shy of 200 pages in case you want to know. And we're working our way through the commentary just kind of verse by verse, chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph through my notes. And so we've made it this far, two years and a few months, and we're already at a page 174. And if in case you're noticing, you're almost done. We're really almost done with the notes. And I'm... Um, I'm mulling over what to do after we finish the book of Galatians. So um, keep listening for the over the next few weeks as I pray about where the Lord would lead me next, uh, whether we continue on with another new commentary. I mean, I've got plenty of written notes that I could work through because I've written plenty of commentaries over the years. Or whether or not we take a break and just stop the uh, the podcasts, or we continue with a different format, maybe not a book study, but maybe just a topical study or something like that. Um, I'm praying about what to do, and uh, once I hear some more direction and confirm some things and confer with maybe some of you all, the listeners, then uh, I'll, I'll let you all know what, what I'm going to do next, okay? All right, let's look at the, ch- at the uh, study tonight. Um, Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. In my notes, I've got a repeat of uh, verses 1 through 10 in the ESV. I'm not going to reread that since I read it in the liturgy. Instead, I'll just jump straight into the notes uh, right now. Let's talk about the comments. All right. At this point in Paul's letter to the Galatians, I say in my notes here, I think he is confident that the charlatans known as the influencers, whom other Christian commentators call the Judaizers, a term I feel is inappropriate and possibly a racial slur, will eventually show themselves to be false teachers, particularly if they stay on in the congregation and continue to be shepherded as the flock of God along with the true sheep. Right, so you guys understand what I'm talking about there? The Judaizers had crept in unaware. Um, these kind of spies had, had snuck in. <clears throat> uh, David Stern's version says snuck in surreptitiously, I think. Uh, and they they were kind of trying to spy out the freedom that we have in Messiah. And so these are the what we call the villains of the peace, the bad guys, right? The, the wolves in sheep's clothing. Uh, sometimes they're referred to as the Judaizers. That's kind of the the... the, the the popular term that most commentators and Christians are used to hearing when we talk about uh, the people who are opposing Paul's theology. We call them the Judaizers. Um, but other commentators call them the agitators or uh, the villainizers or something like that. Um, Mark Nanos, who is a non-believing, uh, non-Christian Jew, yet has an incredible insight into the uh, the New Testament uh, writings, he calls them the Jew, uh, the influencers, and that's the term that I've adopted because as a Jew, I think the term Judaizer is slightly pejorative. I think it's uh, racially charged. It it kind of puts a negative spin on the term Jewish, a Jewish uh, lifestyle, right? To, to to live according to Judaism in a negative light. Um, I think that's wrong-headed. I think it's a wrong way to describe people who live a, a, a lifestyle that's characterized as Jewish. So I don't I don't like the term Judaizer. It kind of offends me as a Jew. I'm not saying that it should offend you as a Gentile, but just letting you know why I use the term influencer. Let's keep reading. In simpler terms, um, God vindicates his own when it comes to those who are true and those who are not. It, sometimes uh, don't you don't have to worry so much that there are wolves in sheep's clothing in your group. Uh, obviously, a pastor should worry about that. Don't get me wrong. But in the end, when all is said and done, it's not like God's just rolling the dice and, and, and taking a vote based on majority. He's not going to say, well, 
sorry, I guess the the the, sh- the wolves outnumber the sheep, so I guess the wolves win. It doesn't work that way. In God's economy, it doesn't matter if in the end the wolves outnumber the sheep. The sheep will get vindicated. They're the ones that God is going to uh, save and rescue at the end of the day, and He will destroy the sheep one. I'm sorry, destroy the wolves one day. So. In simpler terms, God vindicates his own. Indeed, Paul confidently states the man, that a man reaps what he sows. We read that in this verse as well. So, speaking of the wolves and the sheep of this congregation, I go on to say the seed of the influencers was rotten to the core, and Paul knew all too well that once that seed had become full-grown, it would reap a harvest not of eternal life, as the influencers were promising, but instead the seed of the influencers would reap um, fruit of destruction because of the eventual revealing of the sinful nature of man, as um, Galatians 6, verses 7 through 8 promises. And recall last week we talked extensively about how that um, there's this difference in Paul's theology between old man and new man. And your identification as seen through God's eyes is vitally important when it comes to um, uh, living your life as either an old man or a new man. To use simple language, if you are described as old man in God's economy, or from God's vantage point, if you are an old man, it means you're unsaved. It means you have not been regenerated on the inside. It means you have an old heart, if we recall the words of a stony heart, if we recall the words of um, Ezekiel 36, uh, 24, 25, 26, somewhere around there in that passage, the liturgy that we've been using for the last few weeks, where God talks about how corporate Israel has this stony heart as a whole. Not each and every single Israelite Right? There's that interplay, once again, between the corporate and the individual. It's not that all of Israel had a stony heart, each and every single Israelite, but that as a, as a group, a collector group, um, the representative uh, viewpoint from God's perspective was that Israel had a stony heart, meaning she was old nature, she was old man. And that's a position that Paul is basically identifying the influencers of, of the Galatians with as well. They don't seem to allow for a lifestyle and a theology that affirms new man, in other words, regeneration from the inside, spirit of God taking residence on the inside, in other words, saved. The lifestyle of the influencers, the theology that they preach, where the Torah is for Jews only, righteousness is exclusively a Jewish position, a a Jewish uh, uh, obligation, a Jewish um, position, and the Torah was for Jews only, and uh, the age to come is reserved for Jews only. All Jews share a place in the in the age to come. All all Israel shares a place in the age to come. That type of thing. So the whole theology of the influencers that was that was kind of centered and and anchored on and built around this idea of ethnicity and nationality, right? Belonging to a people group, so that your all of your righteousness was bound up with your ethnicity. And the Torah was the expression of not only your your ethnicity, but Torah became the expression of your righteousness and and things like that. So that the Torah was was restricted in nationalistic terms, right? That whole law for Jews only, that type of thing. Um, Paul opposes all of that, and he feels that all of that belongs into the camp of old man, old nature, and the fruit. Uh, of the sowing and reaping principle that he mentions in in these this section that we're studying, the fruit is not going to reap. It's not going to be eternal life, but instead it's going to be corruption. And that's why he says, "For the one who sows to his own flesh, will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit." So there, the the dichotomy that Paul is describing 
quite often in his in his letters and and we see this here in Galatians as well the dichotomy is not a not a a sharp contrast between the law and grace per se it's a sharp contrast between um old nature and grace or old man and new man or sin and grace or 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 life and death uh those are, that's the dichotomy and i i remember i um I uh, admonished everyone last week to go back and read Romans chapters 6, 7, and 8 in one setting, where in chapter 6, Paul deals heavily with, with sin and its relationship to the law, and sin and, it, and its consequence of death, and sin and the bondage, and, and the condemnation of, of sin, and the way that the law leverages sin, and the way the sin leverages the law. They have this relationship to one another. I call them the unholy dynamic duo, right? This this diabolical uh, uh, diabolical dynamic duo, sin and the law, and the the whole outcome of that that dynamic relationship of sin and the law, as it impacts an unbeliever, is that it will it will it will um, it will cause a person to be counted as uh, condemned in God's eyes because he's a sinner; he's not been acquitted in God's courtroom. So. Uh, that's that's explained quite lengthy and, and you know quite explicitly quite detailed in Romans chapter six. Go back and read that, and then continue on into chapter seven and eight, where Paul shows that there's this contrast now that you've been set free from your proclivity to sin and the bondage to sin, and because of that, your relationship to the law has changed. And he does that by explaining that relationship change of status with his example of a married woman uh, and the husband dies, you know, Romans chapter 7, the first few verses. You Likewise, you two brothers have considered yourselves dead to the law, meaning dead to the condemnation, the condemning aspect of the law, the part where the law could could um, latch a hold of sin and then also spiral you out of control uh, when it comes to a sinful lifestyle, the control of sin over your life, uh, the proclivity to sin. Uh, Paul says, consider yourselves dead to all that. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive unto God. You're no longer under the law in that regard. You're no longer under the condemning aspect, the proclivity to sin, the the, uh, bondage to uh, sin and that that whole that whole dynamic that sin and the law had with each other that that doesn't apply to you as those who live your life by the spirit so sow to the spirit and you'll reap eternal life from the spirit you'll reap eternal life in these verses in these verses uh, verses sorry about that uh, which are packed with wonderful spiritual nutrition Paul also states that by seeking the well-being of our fellow believers, right? Recall uh, Galatians um, 5, verse 14, where Paul says the whole law is summed up or fulfilled by loving your neighbor as yourself, right? Recall that we talked about that a few weeks back. So the the, the whole concept of um, of 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 being in a community, and this is why I brought out what I brought out in the liturgy part in the Tanakh, the whole the whole concept of a, of a group dynamic as seen through the, through the eyes of God himself, is that the individuals need to, to have a view towards the other. You can't simply just look out for number one, so to say, this rugged, indiv- uh, what we call it, this rugged self-individual, this rugged individualism that we have in our Western mind where it's me, myself, and I, and nobody cares for me, so I need to take, out for my, take care of my, myself. You know, no one's going to climb the ladder for me. I've got to climb it myself. If I want to succeed in life, I've got to, to, to look out for myself. And therefore, you know, it's always 
uh, me, myself, it's I, it's me, it's me, it's me, right? This, it's that, that whole me mentality. And that, you know, that's not the, um, ingredients of a good, healthy community, which Paul's going to bring out. So in these verses, verses, I say, I don't know why I keep, keep saying versage instead of verses. Paul also states that by seeking the well-being of our fellow believers and putting their needs and burdens above our own, this is a theme that he also expounds upon quite nicely in Romans chapter 14 and 15. By doing so, we show ourselves to be fulfilling, here's our phrase, the law of Christ. In the Greek, we have namon to Christu. That's our Greek phrase, the law of Christ. Literally in Greek, if we were to follow the syntax, it would be law the Christs. Uh, we're going to look at the, the, the noun uh, the Christu part and see that it's a genitive, meaning it's a possessive noun. Alright, so this is a phrase that I say in my commentary that standard Christianity interprets as in contrast to the law of Moshe, right? If you've ever l sat under Christian sermons or listened to to, to, your, to your most of your uh, uh, Bible studies, uh, commentaries, read in your commentaries, uh, things like that, this is basically the description of the law of Christ. It's typically in contradistinction, right? It's a Paul. In other words, Paul draws this dichotomy between the law of Moses and the law of Christ, and so it's not uncommon to hear Christians um, proclaim, Gentile Christians usually proclaim that we're not under the law of Moses. We are instead, as in contrast, we are instead under the law of Christ. We're under the law of Messiah. So this is where we're going to get this. So let's look at this for a moment. Look at these bullet points in my um, commentary. Uh, these bullet points belong to a, a, a commentary itself, and I'll tell you I'll tell you where the source was in a moment. But let me just read them. These are all traditional ways of viewing this phrase "law of Christ." Right? Just listen up for a moment. If you're if you're a part of a messianic congregation, then you're probably used to hearing these phrases, these these interpretations, and with most of them, you probably. Um, uh, you kind of agree somewhat, but you don't draw a strong contrast between the law of Christ and the law of Moses like traditional Christianity, historic Christianity has done. Listen up. Paul says that, first the first bullet point. Paul says that when we live this way, right, live, in, live uh, uh, by fulfilling ourselves or by, um, live by uh, meeting the needs of others instead of meeting our own needs. Paul says that when we do this, we're fulfilling the law of Christ. The law of Christ, I go on to say in these bullet points, the law of Christ is the law written on our hearts that Jeremiah promised would come with new covenant. So far, um, this doesn't sound like this is a strong contrast, but listen up. Let me keep reading, and you'll you'll quickly see that 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 this is the case. Uh, the next bullet point says that these laws are found on our heart and directed by the Holy Spirit. That's why I can't give you a list of the law of Christ, right? Um, people will say the law of Moses is a list, but the law of Christ there there isn't a, a list that you can write down because it's found on our heart. Notice these are some of the differences that people start to to highlight in in their understanding of the, of the law of Christ. The law of Christ can be summarized though because Jesus did it for us, right? Um, this is another way of describing the law of Christ. It's summarized because Jesus did it for us. In other words, Paul can summarize it because it's something that Jesus did. We don't have to have Moshe demonstrating it for us. It's something that Jesus did instead. This law replaces the law of Moses. There it is in black and white. That's basically the traditional Christian interpretation of the law of, Mo of, the law of Christ. It replaces the law of Moses. In other words, the law of Moses had its use. It had its, it had its dispensation. It had its time. 
but it gave way in the fullness of time, in the unfolding of God's progressive revelation to mankind. The law of Moses ran its course, and then the law of Christ came and overtook the law of Moses, so to say, and therefore the law of Moses was brought to an end. That 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 administration came to a close, and the law of Christ uh, sprang to reality, and that is now the dispensation or the or the time period that we live in now is this dispensation of grace where we live, we as believers live by the law of Christ, not by the old dispensation of the law of Moses. All right. That's, of course, again, traditional Christian theology. Let's keep reading. This is why we say that Christians still live by rules and standards, right? We do have a rule according to this theology. But those standards aren't found in reading the Ten Commandments or any other part of the law of Moses. You've probably heard this before in traditional Christian circles, and, and you've probably heard it taught upon in, um, in even in Messianic circles, that this is a traditional Christian position, that it's not the standards of Moses that we're to uphold, it's the standards of, of Christ that we're uphold. Uh, let's keep going. Our flesh loves to see things written in black and white. Right? That's why perhaps maybe pastors will say that people gravitate towards the Ten Commandments or why perhaps maybe these Messianics, speaking as a traditional Christian, why these Messianics, people like me, um, why we're drawn to the Law of Moses because humanly speaking, or right, psychologically speaking, our flesh loves things that are written in black and white. Okay. Uh, this list goes on to say that, but in his wisdom, God chose to write his law in blood on our hearts where we can't see it. Notice again the contrast between what's written on pages versus what's written in our hearts by the blood of Messiah, the law of Christ. All right? And then the final bullet point, top of page 175, from this source that I'm going to reveal here in a moment, is instead, we can only follow him in spirit and truth if we follow him at all. Right? We no longer serve according to the letter, but we serve according to the Spirit. If we read, um, what is it, in Corinthians, I think it's uh, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I believe, where Paul talks about it's not the, by the letter that we serve, but by the Spirit that we serve. It's no longer, uh, you know, we don't serve God according to the letter, but according to the Spirit. I, I think that's also repeated in um uh, somewhere in the other in the apostolic scriptures in a different spot. But let's look at my footnote 163. I pulled those bullet points from verse by verse ministries uh, commentary to the book of Galatians, um, and their website is www.versebyverseministry.org. So you can go there and and check it out and see if I misquoted or if I caught the context correctly. And if I if I misrepresented verse by verse ministries, feel free to drop me an email and uh, uh, let me know that I misrepresented them and tell me where I need to correct myself, okay? All right, let's keep reading my own commentary. I, here's what I say. After having represented basically the traditional Christian um, standard uh, position on law of Moses versus, right, in contrast to the law of Christ, here's what I have to say in my notes. But why should we interpret this phrase, that is law of Christ, as anything other than the perfect law of God as already revealed in the pages of Scripture and as perfectly modeled by our Master himself? Right? Do you ever stop to think about that? Instead of just thinking, automatically assuming that when Paul says the law of Christ, that he must mean something different than the existing law of Moses that was available to Paul in the day that Paul wrote this phrase? Right? Have you ever stopped to think that maybe Paul didn't mean something different? from the law of Moses, but that he meant something that was related to the law of Moses, but there's something special and unique about using this phrase, uh, namon tu Christu. Why did he even use that Greek phrase at all? 
Let's keep reading my commentary. I think that when we unnecessarily, we as believers, we as Gentile Christians, and Jewish Christians, by the way, but particularly Gentile uh, Christianity seems to be the one, the, it seems to be the historical group that has uh, more readily accepted the notion that we're no, that we as believers are no longer uh, related, uh, no longer obligated to keep a law that is seemingly uh, given to Jews only. I think that when we believers unnecessarily add meanings to the text that we are not that are not warranted by the context, in other words, we eisegete instead of exegete. Uh, then when we do this, we do damage to the text and we bring about all manner of gross interpretations and practical applications. That's my opinion. Notice, David H. Stern's translation of verse 2 reveals what I think to be the true meaning of this passage. Listen to David Stern's expanded translation where he feels that he takes liberty sometimes and, and and paraphrases what he thinks going on in the Greek. And I think that is warranted at times. Sometimes it's better to have a wooden word-for-word, word, what does the Greek say, and strip away all the, the, the paraphrasing so we can see what the Greek says, because sometimes paraphrasing obscures the meaning. But other times, the Greek is so uh, uh, sparse um, that we need a paraphrase to try to bring out, using the context, the essence of what Paul or whatever biblical writer might be trying to convey. And so I think David Stern does a good job this time. Listen to his his uh, rendering of this verse. This is Galatians uh, 6, verse uh, 3. Bear one another's burdens. In this way you will be fulfilling the Torah's true meaning, which the Messiah upholds. Now isn't that interesting, the way he translates it that way? All right, fulfilling the Torah's true meaning, which the Messiah upholds. All right, which means there's a way to not fulfill the Torah's true meaning. In other words, there's a way to to actually fall into the trap of perverting the Torah. There's a perversion of Torah, and there's a true meaning of Torah, meaning there's a false way of understanding the Torah, a false meaning to Torah, and a true meaning to Torah. There's a uh, an accurate way to to understand and, and uphold the Torah, and there's an inaccurate way to uphold and understand the Torah, right? So the Torah itself becomes this this innocent uh, tool that can be used or misused, depending on um, how a person approaches it. Let's keep reading. What is more, Tim Haig, in my opinion, also brings out the proper meaning of the phrase law of Christ in his commentary to the book of Galatians. Let's read this lengthy quote from Tim Haig, and then we'll read one more uh, quote from myself, and that'll be the end of my notes here. And then I'll just I'll, I'll bring the commentary to close by saying a few things about 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where we also find this phrase, law of Christ, as, as we're going to see here in a moment. All right, Tim Haig has to say this, quote, Fulfill the Torah or the teaching of Messiah. Recall that the word law, law there, the word namas in the Greek, the word Torah, also simply means teaching. I've heard many Messianic pastors or rabbis highlight this fact as well, that when we, when we say that we follow the law of God, it's helpful to uh, Gentile Christians who don't carry that same sentiment. Um, it's helpful to explain to maybe our Gentile friends and family members who are not of the persuasion that they should be keeping the law. It's helpful to explain to them that the word law, the word Torah in Hebrew, can also simply mean teaching. So when we think of it that way, when we approach it from that mindset, we don't have to look at it as God's uh, do's and don'ts, black and white list of, of strict, uh, um, you know, harsh disciplinarian rules, you know, thou shalt and thou shalt not. Instead, if we remind ourselves that 
God's law equals God's teaching and instruction, then the word teaching there, substituting for the word law, gives it a softer feeling and, 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 and actually appropriately captures this, the idea that uh, that all of God's words are God's teaching and instruction to us. And that includes both the do's and don'ts as well as the admonitions uh, and the, 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 the all of the other types of narrative and the poetry and the prophecy and the, um, the eschatology verses and all of the other end-time type writings that we read about in the, in the, in the Bible itself. In other, in other words, all of the Bible is God's teaching and instruction to mankind generally and to believers specifically. That's a good place to say amen. All right, so Tim, Tim brings that notion out by calling it fulfill the Torah of Messiah, fulfill the law of Messiah. Here's what Heg has to say, quote, the teachings of Yeshua were no doubt known among the congregations of the way, even before the Gospels as we know them were finalized in their canonical form. The apostles were commissioned to, quote, make disciples of the nations, end quote, and to, quote, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you, end quote. Of course, that's a reference to Matthew 28, 18 and following. Haig goes on to say, thus, the phrase Torah of Messiah or Naman to Christu, right, the law of Messiah, law of Christ, should be understood as, quote, the Torah as Messiah taught it and lived it, end quote. Did you notice Tim Haig's rendering of that same passage? It sounds very close to, to uh, David Stern's rendering, the Torah as Messiah taught it and lived it. Haig goes on to challenge us. It is anachronistic to interpret the phrase as though the Torah of Messiah is different than the Torah of Moses, right? Anachronistic is a fancy word that means out of place and time, right? It's kind of like kind of like saying when Moshe wanted to check the check what time it was, he looked down at his watch. Well, duh, he can't do that because watches weren't invented in his day, unless he looked down at his wrist and he was wearing like a sundial, like we see in like the the Flintstones cartoon, right? Fred Flintstone looks down at his sundial. Ah, ha, ha. Nope, that didn't work either. Moshe didn't wear a watch, right? Moshe didn't open up his Bible and turn to, turn to the book of Deuteronomy. It didn't work that way. All right. That's all, those are all anachronistic descriptions of things that didn't exist in the time period of, of Moshe. So that's, that's what, what Hegg's trying to remind us of when we, when we, we in Christian circles like to say that, um, uh, that uh, the law of Messiah is different than the law of Moses. That can't be because historically at the time of the writing of the book of Galatians that Paul is writing for us, which was sometime in the 50s, even the Gospels hadn't been written down yet. Right? Paul's letter to the Galatians is is one of the first, if not the first, uh, books of the New Testament that we have historically, being as early as the 50s, like I said. It's one of the earliest writings of Paul. And so uh, there was no... I'm using air quotes with my fingers for those of you who can't see. There was no New Testament that the that the Christians of Paul's day could simply reference by holding something in their hands, other than the letters of Paul. And even then, the letters that Paul was 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 uh, constructing in his day, I don't think that Paul knew a hundred percent that they would be turned into holy writ, that they would be canonized. I think he knew that they were inspired and that they were God's uh, genuine. Uh, instructions to him, and I think he knew that they were authoritative. In fact, I'm sure that he affirmed that they were authoritative for the communities that he was sending them to. He knew that they were to be received as what we might say as a messianic halakha or a messianic uh, authoritative instructions and admonitions. 
uh, to be received as as God's spirit um, agreeing with and upholding and endorsing. I, I I believe that, but I don't think he thought that this is canon yet. I don't think he thought, wow, someday my letters will be put together into a book that people are going to call the New Testament, and they'll be able to use this book called the New Testament in contradistinction to the book that other people call the Old Testament. No, that's all anachronistic. It's just like James Trim is fond of saying, there are two things that the New Testament church did not have in that day. They didn't have a New Testament, and they didn't have a church. All right. Okay, let's keep going. So, Hegg goes on to say, surely... Um, it is at, uh, surely, I think he's got a typo here, or I do. Surely it at variance, it is at variance, I think he's trying to say, with a good deal of the rabbinic tradition, uh, uh, rabbinic interpretations of the, of the Torah, right? The way that, what he's trying to say is that the way that Yeshua, uh, interpreted the Torah was, um, at variance with the way that the rabbis of his day, the proto-rabbis, were interpreting the Torah. So this is true, right? The way that, Yeshua interpreted the Torah in the way that many of the leaders of his day interpreted the Torah. Remember, I said it's it's a difference between the interpretations, not necessarily a difference in the in the um, in the overall uh, uh, structure of the Torah itself. So, uh, yes, we must recognize that Jesus, our Lord, our Messiah, our Master, our Rabbi, had a different interpretation of Torah than many of the leaders of his day. This is true, but it was not in any manner contradictory to Moses is the point we're trying to say. So Moses, what Moshe wrote and what Yeshua taught concerning Moshe are in agreement with one another. It's more often that what Moshe wrote and what the rabbis interpreted Moshe writing was at odds with one another. And the rabbis didn't see that. The teachers of Yeshua's day, the Pharisees, the scribes, many of the religious leaders, they at more often than not, were blinded to the true intentions of what the Torah was teaching, blinded by their own tradition, blinded by their own sin, blinded by their own inability to receive Yeshua as Messiah, so blinded by their by the rejection of him. And so they were blind to the true uh, interpretation, an accurate interpretation. They were blind to the accurate interpretation of Torah. So Yeshua came to not only uh, correct their inaccuracies, but also came to further explain the true and greater intentions of what the Torah was getting at. Uh, in other words, he moved it from a surface level reading, which is true, down to a deeper heart understanding, which was even more true. You understand what I'm saying? Yeshua didn't go above the Torah as if the Torah itself was bad. He didn't leap from the written page and describe an ethereal, ephemeral, uh, um, uh, you know, kind of um, non-logical, a non-physical uh, or, or, or practical or pragmatic approach to the Torah. He didn't just kind of give the Torah some some um, you know fluffy interpretation that no one could hold on, grab a hold of unless you were the super pseudo spiritual blah blah blah. You know this kind of um, uh, 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 metaphysical meaning to Torah. That's not what. That's not at all what. It wasn't mystical that what Yeshua was describing. Rather, he took the pages of the of the of the Torah, the the written pages what was written, which was already true, which was already a firm foundation. And Yeshua went down. He didn't go up, per se. He went down into the deeper meaning and thus affirmed that the written Torah was was true as well as the, the intended spiritual meaning of the Torah was true. He went both ways. All right, so Tim Hegg goes on to say, to postulate such a thing, you know, that, that the law of Christ is different from the law of Moses, to postulate such a thing uh, would be to call into question the very veracity of Yeshua himself. For anyone who comes 
teaching something contrary to what is found in the Torah is considered a false prophet, right? If anyone's teaching something other, we recall the words of Deuteronomy, where uh, Moshe tells us that here's a here's one of the ways you can you can uh, spot you Israel. Here's one ways you can spot a false prophet, and the way you can do that is if he's teaching you contrary to the words of God, which are the words that I'm writing down for you, the words of the Torah. All right. Rather, what Tim Hag says is Yeshua, both in his words and in his actions, brought the divinely intended meaning of the Torah to the, the eyes and the ears of those he taught. Right. Yeshua brought the same message that Moshe brought. And that's important for us to recognize and affirm as believers, because if we say that Jesus law is different from Moses law, then we we put Jesus in the dangerous position of the false prophet who taught something contrary to the words of Moses. I've got to go back and look at which passage it is to make sure. Moshe's basically, again, confirming that uh, all that God gave us through the words of all that the God has given to us in this law is that which we need to uphold. All right, so Moses uh, and Yeshua have to agree with one another. Otherwise, Yeshua is a false prophet. So that's what Tim Hague's trying to bring out here. Uh, he goes on to say that Yeshua's emphasis was upon living out a Torah in which genuine love for God and, and love for one's neighbor, right? Notice the dynamic between our individual and personal relationship with God and our our corporate relationship with one another. It's that horizontal and the vertical relationship that I described a few weeks back that forms a convenient cross, right? The, the line that goes from earth to heaven and the line that goes side to side, left to right, from top to bottom and from left to right. That's our uh, uh, responsibility as as followers after God. Both of those relationships are important. Relationship with God and relationship with one another. And that's what Yeshua emphasized. This was the driving factor in halakhic decisions. And this accords with what um, Paul just uh, said in uh, Galatians chapter 6 uh, about bearing one another's burdens, fulfilling the law of Christ, um, uh, uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 14, uh, fulfilling the law by loving one another, right? Loving your neighbor as yourself. So let's keep reading and finish this up tonight. While the sages, Tim Hague says, were expert at piling burdens upon men's shoulders without lifting a finger to help them bear the load, right? Recall Matthew 23, 4. Yeshua sought to actually unwrap the Torah from the entanglements of men and to show that living a life of Torah by faith is not a burden but a delight. This is something that we Messianics uh, try time and time again to explain to our Christian friends and counterparts who don't espouse to following after the Hebraic lifestyle. We try to explain to them that we don't keep the Torah to become saved. We keep the Torah because we're saved. And that our keeping of the Torah is a delight. It's not a burden. It is a delight. This is what we try to explain to them, that, that the keeping of the Sabbath and kosher and keeping the festivals, all of this is a delight to us. We delight in doing after what God wants us to do because the Torah is written on our hearts, a.k.a. Uh, uh, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. All right, let's keep reading. So Yeshua brought this delightful Torah to us, and that's the law that Messiah upholds that Tim Hague's trying to highlight. Hague goes on to conclude, therefore, by bearing the burdens of one another, like Paul admonishes, the followers of Yeshua actually fulfill the Torah as it was intended to be fulfilled by living it out in the context of love for God. There's the first relationship, the personal one, that I highlighted in our in our um, liturgy from the Hebrew tonight with the love the Lord thy God, the love the Lord your God, right? That's the first love the Lord thy God, this context of love, love for God, and then love for one's neighbor, love the Lord your God, 
as a community, the, the personal relationship and the corporate relationship, the personal pronoun, uh, the singular and the plural. That's what I was highlighting with the, the, with the Hebrew there. So this is the context of, of Yeshua's law, Yeshua's Torah is love for God, love for one's neighbor. It's in this way, Tim Higgs says, the Torah is taught and modeled by Yeshua would actually be fulfilled, end quote. And I lifted that from Tim Hague's study of Galatians, which is available for sale at uh, www.torahresource.com, uh, page 214. Let me finish up uh, tonight's study with my own uh, final um, comment. This may be more related to the concept of law of Christ than to Galatians, my final notes here. Um, but I feel the need to say it here anyway. If we in the Messianic movement, Torah communities, etc., if we are to be pleasing to God, then my challenge is that simply following after Torah the way traditional Judaism does may not always prove to be appropriate for us, since we identify and belong to Him, to Yeshua. And history shows that Yeshua quite often, we're near the top of page 176 now, Yeshua quite often had differences of opinion in the way His contemporary Jewish leaders were ostensibly following the Torah. You guys following along with me? So, um, I'm not saying that everything that traditional Judaism is in regards to Torah is wrong. Everything that traditional Judaism says in regards to Torah is wrong. I'm not saying that you need to completely write off the rabbis, right? But what I am saying is that, as I keep reading my commentary, as Jews and Gentiles and Messiah, and listen up, our primary source of halacha, our primary source of church policy, our primary source of how do we walk this out, which is what the word halacha literally means. It's the walking out of Torah. It's the, it's the feet to our faith. It's the, it's, it is the group and church policies that are formed as a result of the instructions that we read about in the Torah. So in my opinion, the word halacha, which is kind of a, a culturally Hebraic concept, is tantamount to church policy, which is maybe a, a, a Greek concept. I think the two can be seen as synonymous uh, without uh, misunderstanding the the, the, the the culture of the word halakha there. But in other words, the point I'm trying to make is our primary source of, of walking out what the Bible tells us to do, in other words, forming our own uh, group policies or or, or um, uh, doctrines or teachings or, or um, uh, what do we say, practices, in other words, uh, the things that... Uh, uh, kind of mark us out as certain denominations. All of that should not be traditional Judaism or Talmud or Shulchan Aruch or, or these are some of the other uh, uh, writings of the rabbis, uh, the, the, you know, Maimonides' um, uh, guide to, to the perplexed, guide for the perplexed or, or uh, uh, the, you know, Maimonides' uh, I can't remember, Mishnah Torah is what he calls it. Um, all of these, these, these heavily halakhic works where, where, Traditional Judaism, under the um, under the uh, uh, leadership of of unbelieving and sometimes anti-missionary rabbis, are trying to explain not only what the Torah means but how to interpret and walk it out, how to implement it. Right. So halakha is the implementation of instruction. Uh, or the implementation of, of, of what God, you know, of commandments themselves. And so it's too easy sometimes for us to say, well, I don't know what the verse means. I'm going to turn to the rabbis. And then here's, here's how they explained it. Here's how they interpreted it. And then here's how they implemented it in their communities. And it's sometimes easy for us as, as messy in communities just to say, you know, that looks pretty good. I think we'll do that that way too. And again, 
there's nothing inherently wrong with doing it the way that the rabbis do it, but we need to remember that that shouldn't be our primary source. Rather, it should be just one of many sources that we can bounce off of, glean information from, and then see if it if if it agrees with or detracts from or, or is in contradiction with uh, the way the messianic communities of the apostolic scriptures of, of the time period of, the, of Messiah, the time period of Paul, see how they would understand any particular given uh, commandment of the Torah. You guys understand my 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 uh, 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 instruction here. So I conclude by saying, instead, uh, our primary instruction should be what? Should be the law of Christ. But what does that mean? Well, we just explain. The law of Christ more naturally means the law or the law of Moses as upheld and interpreted and walked out by the Messiah himself. The Torah is fulfilled and demonstrated perfectly by the living Torah, Yeshua himself. And so in closing, give me five more minutes, those of you who are with me in the live class. I know I've gone a little bit over, and I always go over, but if you'll allow me, give me just five minutes, and I want to show you something in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, a very familiar passage, and the only other place in the Apostolic Scriptures where we find this phrase, law of Christ. Uh, before I turn to um, Corinthians, let me just show you in the Greek of Galatians chapter 6, where we read about, uh, so fulfill the law of Christ. Um, in the Greek, it says, one another's burdens bear you, right? Ale lon ta bare bastadset. Um, one another's burdens bear. And then he says, And Kai, Hutos, thus, you shall fulfill anaplerosita, the tone law, namon, two, which is another uh, uh, article again, the, so, but it doesn't get translated in the Greek, otherwise we'd end up with into the English. Otherwise we'd have the law, the of Christ. So the translators usually... Uh, smooth out the double uh, article there. The ton and the two are both articles. So, uh, the ton, namon, law, to, the, again, same article, and then Christu, of Christ. And the thing I wanted to highlight for you is that um, the, the word Christ here is a genitive, meaning it's a possessive noun. So we could translate it Christ's law. Christ apostrophe S. That's what I mean by genitive. And we can see this if you look at the Greek, uh, the, 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 the interlinear that I'm using. If I hover my mouse over the, 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 the um, morphology down at the bottom, it shows that it's a noun, a genitive, masculine, singular. So this is the law of Christ or Christ's law. So Paul's really saying, bear one another's burdens and thus you shall fulfill Christ's law. Christ's law. Now, with that being said, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 9 just real quick. I'm going to see if I can do this in five minutes, so bear with me. In 1 Corinthians 9, this is the only other place where we find this phrase, the law of Christ. And it's down in chapter 9, starting in verse um, in verse 19, where Paul starts explaining the freedoms that he has as a believer. And he's talking about, once again, his relationship to the community as a whole. It's so important for us when we're reading through both the Torah and the Apostolic Scriptures for us to catch the, the import of the relationship that Paul is, is describing when he's talking about um, the dynamic of a, of a community where we have individuals and we have groups of individuals. We have people and we have communities and, there, and this, this dynamic between one another. And we have to also recall that, that the theology that's central in Paul's mind is that the law, the law of God, is fulfilled by loving your neighbor. Remember, that's Galatians 5 verse 14. You fulfill the law by loving your neighbor. In other words, you move from self-centeredness to group uh, 
group centeredness or to to this um this this concern for the group as a whole you put the other person above yourself you you take a position of um of deference is what i'm trying to say uh in other words you take a back seat and you, you exalt the other person you bring that other person up you you lift that other person up in god's eyes and and it's, and it's this is the this is, of course, exactly the way Yeshua modeled it himself. Instead of clamoring to be the greatest, like self, like like humanity, like 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 uh, fallen humanity um, demonstrates, you know, right, right, you know, look out for number one. I'm the most important. Me, myself, and I. That's that's fallen humanity's way of viewing uh, their life and 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 those around them. Instead, Yeshua said, "No, no, no. Here's the way I want you, my followers, to understand your view of life." It's the opposite of that. It's that you clamor for the back seat. You you clamor for the lower position. You you seek the position of servitude. And I'm going to demonstrate that for you by washing the disciples' feet. I'm going to demonstrate that for you by becoming a servant of servants, right? So Yeshua demonstrated servanthood. And in this way, God is the one who exalts you. God is the one that will bring you into positions of prominence. Right? I, I'm going over my five minutes. Minutes. I apologize. So the point I'm trying to make is, we as followers of Messiah, we imitate Messiah by also becoming servants. We don't exalt ourselves. We instead humble ourselves. We take the position of humility, and instead we serve the other person. We exalt. We we put them in the place of prominence. We defer to them. We give them the place of of honor, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's why Paul would say that that fulfillment of the law is loving your neighbor. We love our neighbor. We we defer to our neighbor in that sense. Now notice it's within the context that Paul says, starting in verse 19. For though I am free from all, I've made myself a what? A servant to all. I'm reading out of the ESV again, First Corinthians nine nineteen, starting there, and then he and then he names these two groups, and he uses it. He does it in a way using poetic, kind of kind of parallelism. Verse twenty, he says, "To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though myself not being under the law, that I might win those under the law." Now this is, I know, a meaty passage. But the, the gist of it is he's talking about Jews, and he parallels that with those who are under the law. Meaning, I believe he's talking about unbelieving Jews, those who are still holding to the uh, the concept of of their Jewish ethnicity as counting as righteous. And um, I don't have time to explain all of the verse, all of verses 19 through uh, 23. But the part I just want to highlight, and maybe we'll do this at a different day. The part I'm trying to highlight is in verse 21, he says, to those outside the law, this of course, by context, must mean a group different than or in contradistinction to the group he just described in verse 20. So I believe he's talking in verse 21 to the Gentiles. Gentiles, to those outside the law, in other words, from the perspective of the synagogue Jews, those that Paul regularly had dealings with in his day, the synagogue Jews looked at Gentiles as outside the law. They're without, they're outside of the covenant protection that's spelled out by the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outs, I became as one outside the law. In other words, Paul put himself in the position of Gentiles quite often, meaning he considered himself as someone who didn't have to, um, uh, 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 who didn't have to Consider that his ethnicity was what caused him to be counted as righteous. And the way I describe, the way I know that that's what he's saying is because in verse 22, the weak, I believe, are the same group that he's describing as those outside the law. They were weak in the eyes of the Jewish people. And he actually, he didn't say I became as weak in verse 22. He actually says I became weak. Meaning, in my opinion, he became as one who did not view his ethnicity as that which gave him covenant status. He became as one 
who viewed his covenant status as secured by Messiah rather than secured by his ethnicity. Therefore, he actually he didn't just become as weak, he actually became weak, which is different than the way he describes himself uh, using the others. He became as a Jew, he became as one outside the law, but in verse 22, he actually became weak. And it's within that context that he says in verse 21, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. In other words, I became as a Gentile who found my, my righteousness not in my ethnicity, but as but as in Messiah. And I became as as this kind of person. In or, and then he says, not being outside the law of God, but... And here's our phrase, under the law of Christ. Notice that he's not outside the law of God. So whatever he means by under the law in verse 20, it cannot mean he's outside of the law. Because he says he's not outside the law of God, but he is in fact under the law of Christ. Now let me say this in in just my closing few seconds and see if this makes sense to you. I propose that what Paul's trying to mean by using this phrase under the law of Christ, which he is, you know, in, 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 um, in uh, the Galatians passage, uh, he's basically uh, within the law of Christ, right? He's he he fulfills the law of Christ. What is this law of Christ that he is uh, in First Corinthians? What is this law of Christ that he is uh, under? Or in fact, the word under here in the Greek is not hupa; it's en n e n. Let me just pull up the the um, pull up the Greek because I'm going to trip myself up if I if I uh, don't. Uh, give me a second here. We want the interlinear verse for a split second. Uh, 921. Uh, to those outside the law, tois anamois, hos, um, yeah, hos anamos, like outside the law, may own not being uh, anamos outside theu all, theu, outside the law of God, theu all but anamos, in other words, within, under, or within uh, Christu, within the law of Christ. So he uses two uh, um, adjectives to describe the law. He says anamos, outside the law, and enamos, within the law. So he's not anamos, he's not lawless, is what he's trying to say. He is actually instead inside the law of God, but more more uh, focused, or more importantly, he's within the law of Christ. So here's what I'm trying to say. Imagine a circle that we call the law of God. Draw a circle called the law of God. And within this large circle called the law of God, draw another smaller circle called the law of Christ. This is what I think Paul's describing. He is within the law of God because he's within the law of Christ. The law of Christ exists within the law of God. The smaller circle exists within the larger circle. And that's what I think Paul's trying to describe here in 1 Corinthians 9. He is not outside the law of God. This means the reverse must be true. He is within the law of God. Well, what is the law of God? It's the law of Moses. It's the same law that was described. So he is within the law of God. He's within the larger circle. But more importantly, he is within the smaller circle that is within the larger circle. Are you guys understanding my, my description here? The law of Christ is a special smaller circle that exists within the larger circle called the law of God. Because those Jews of Paul's day who also considered themselves within the law of God, perhaps from Paul's perspective, he would describe them as also being within the larger circle called the law of God. In other words, from a natural perspective, you can be within the circle called the law of God because you're upholding the law 
from a letter perspective. You're keeping the letter of the law, and therefore, from a legal perspective, you are within the bigger circle called the law of God. But that doesn't necessarily mean, automatically mean, that you are within the smaller circle called the law of Christ. That smaller circle called the law of Christ is reserved exclusively for those like like uh, Paul who have surrendered to Messiah himself and who thus have the ability because of the spirit that we just read about in the previous verses they have the ability by the spirit to actually love their neighbor as themselves and therefore thus fulfill the law of God in other words the smaller circle is the only way to actually fulfill the larger circle the law of Christ is really the only way to fulfill the law of God that's what Paul said almost quite exclusively, explicitly in uh, Galatians 5.14, which we studied a few weeks back. So, in closing, I'm simply trying to say this. Rather than interpreting Paul saying that, um, uh, rather than, that, rather than the, like the traditional Christian commentaries and sermons that we read out of today, interpreting the law of Christ as, to use my little picture that I drew with the circles, rather than putting this smaller circle called the law of Christ outside of and in contradistinction to the larger circle called the law of God. In other words, rather than seeing a picture where we have two circles that are separate from one one another, a larger circle over on the left side and a smaller circle on the right side, the larger circle on the left called the law of God and the smaller circle on the right called the law of Christ, rather than that being our interpretation like historic Christianity has has positioned or posited, Rather than that being the way, instead, let's let Paul's description in 1 Corinthians 9.21, where he uses the frame, essentially the same phrase, uh, the law of Christ, right? The namas Christu. If we just uh, take the noun part, the namas Christu, which is basically what he said in Galatians 6. If we understand that Paul takes this under the law and he confesses that he himself is not, right, may not, Anamas. He's not outside the law of God. This means that he is within or inside the law of God. So that's his first position. And then within the law of God, he is also within or in namas. I don't like this translation where it says under the law of God to use that adjective for n. Instead, the Greek word en, uh, the first two letters, is more properly within. So he is within the law of Christ because the law of Christ is within the law of God itself, and therefore it's a it's a unique viewpoint. It's the law that Messiah upholds. You guys aren't following me along? All right. If you're confused, write in to me. Say, Ariel, I didn't understand what you were saying there in the last few 10 or 15 minutes of your commentary. Can you explain it a little better? And I'll explain it to you in email if that's what you need. Otherwise, let's close down the uh, uh, the um the uh, live class tonight. I've gone a little bit over as I usually do. I, I really do ask for forgiveness. I try to stick to my hour, but it just doesn't happen all the time. So I, I ask for your uh, understanding here. Let's close with a word of prayer and we'll entertain some uh, questions and comments in the uh, live chat afterwards. And if that's something you'd like to do, and join us live each week via SkypeCon. There's room for more, right? I think Skype will handle up to... I think the live Skype will hand up to about 10 more people, so uh, we've got room for more. It's, a, it's really a small group, so come on out. I promise you'll get a chance to speak, all right? Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name, and I thank you for the understanding that I believe the Holy Spirit is giving to us. I thank you that uh, we can study the Scriptures and make them alive to us, that we, we can recognize that it's the Spirit's indwelling that, that causes the, the letters of the the script to to jump off the page and to 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 resonate with us in our hearts so that we can take action so that we can live a life that's pleasing to God so that we can walk into the law of God as modeled after uh, by Yeshua himself so that we can walk into the law of Christ 
knowing full well that basically it is the law of Moses, but it's the law that Messiah upholds. It's the it's the messianic version of the Torah. It's the Torah as interpreted from a messianic perspective. But it's the same Torah. It's the same law. It's the same law that you that you wrote on 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 parchment in Moshe's day that you said you would write on our heart via the new covenant. And we know that this new covenant is both a corporate reality as well as an individual reality. Right now it's more mostly an individual reality. The Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 new covenant passages that we read about in Hebrews chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 10. It's mostly a personal uh, new covenant that we read about because uh, corporate Israel has yet to um, experience the corporate aspect of this new covenant. So we pray, Lord, that those of us who have embraced the new covenant on an individual level, that we can say the Lord thy God ex- applies to us, like we read in our uh, uh, liturgy tonight out of the Hebrew. Um, we know that that we have embraced the Lord our God as a personal God, the Lord my God, the Lord thy God, like Moshe said in that in that English rendering from the uh, 1917 JPS version. But Lord, we pray that one day Israel as a whole uh, would uh, uh, actualize and realize the corporate promises were given to her as well. You shall love the Lord your God, like Moshe also enjoins with that with that uh, that uh, plural pronoun your. Uh, we know that one day that will come to pass. That uh, you've you've said this uh, that you would that you would give this new covenant to Israel as a whole. You would write the the very same laws that for now only exist on paper and print. One day these laws would be written on the heart. And thank you, Lord, that this is a promise that will come to pass, and we look forward to that promise. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory for all of these wonderful things. B'Shem Yeshua, amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y E S H U A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>